With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Trillions of dollars have been injected into the U.S. economy since March. Late last month, Congress passed the CARES Act. That's a $2 trillion relief bill designed to help the country cope with the economic devastation it's faced since the novel coronavirus outbreak began. But those trillions weren't enough. New legislation expected to pass Congress this week adds $484 billion to that total, funds that are allocated for small business recovery, hospitals, and coronavirus testing. As our country faces incredibly trying circumstances, emergency money from the federal government is intended to help us recover. It's intended for businesses to weather the storm, and it's intended to keep our economy stable. So is it working? As the federal government injects more and more money, where does it all come from, really? What are the short-term and long-term consequences of these economic decisions? And as we head toward the election in November, how does all of this affect President Trump's economic message, once a key pillar of his re-election efforts? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. In this episode, we'll explain the economic levers that Congress and the Federal Reserve can control and what it all means for pumping money into the economy, accruing national debt, and the potential for rising inflation. But first, I turn to Washington Post congressional reporter Erica Werner. Erica's work focuses on economic policy. I talked to her midday Thursday as the House was expected to pass the latest relief bill. She broke down how these recent funding decisions have played out in Congress, starting with the CARES Act. The CARES Act was the $2 trillion plus massive record bailout bill that Congress passed at the end of March that addressed the impacts of the coronavirus across the economy with a large variety of measures aimed at large businesses, small businesses, individual Americans, unemployment insurance, and much, much more. So then within that, What is the Paycheck Protection Program specifically? What is it designed for and what is it supposed to do? The Paycheck Protection Program, which was principally authored by Senator Marco Rubio, the chairman of the Small Business Committee in the Senate, was a $349 billion program aimed at businesses with under 500 employees. The goal was to ensure that they could keep workers on payroll by extending loans up to $10 million that would be forgivable if uh, they used that money primarily to keep their workers employed. And this new relief package that's expected to pass the House on Thursday, what is in that package? Well, the Paycheck Protection Program was overwhelmed by demand. It rolled out April 3rd and within about two weeks, had to stop issuing loans because there was no money left. There's been some controversy around that because of the ability of some larger businesses, as it turned out, 
to tap into those loans, kind of crowding out the smaller businesses that it was really intended for. Since then, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has indicated that those larger companies will be asked to return the money. However, the new piece of legislation that passed the Senate Tuesday and is passing the House Thursday is primarily focused on replenishing the Paycheck Protection Program with $310 billion more dollars for that program. And it also includes, at the insistence of Democrats, $75 billion for hospitals and other healthcare providers and $25 billion to establish a new coronavirus testing protocol. Now, how are lawmakers voting on this Thursday when most of them have not been physically in Washington? Well, the Senate passed the bill by voice vote with just a few members present. The House vote is going to be different because Republicans insisted on a quorum, i.e. a majority of lawmakers to be present to vote. So we'll have 200 plus lawmakers at the Capitol and at the Capitol complex. In order to try to conduct the vote in a safe and socially distanced manner, they are grouping lawmakers alphabetically. So groups of lawmakers will come in, you know, one group will cycle in and vote and then leave. The next group will follow, do the same. And so it is a very the the look of the vote will be very much different than what we have been used to seeing when the house floor is crowded with members casting votes they are attempting to do it in a way that members will be able to maintain 6 feet of distance but nonetheless have a majority physically present and voting Okay. And you mentioned that money from the first round of funding for this program ran out last week. Did that money run out on an expected timeline or was it faster or slower than expected? And why was there a gap in replenishing these funds? It had been anticipated from the outset that the money would run out and need to be re-upped. However, um, the speed with which that happened was surprising and indicated the need for urgent action. What happened was that the administration, even in the initial days, as they saw that the fund was going to be running dry, asked Congress to approve $250 billion to re-up the fund before it ran out. They wanted Congress to do that essentially with no strings attached, and Democrats would not agree to that. That resulted in kind of a partisan standoff that lasted for about a week or so as Republicans in the administration continued to insist that Democrats approve this new money. The kind of hope and expectation from Republicans was that as Democrats saw small businesses desperate for funding, that they would see the need to just approve this straight funding increase and do so. But Democrats held out for their demands. Negotiations ensued over the past weekend. And the end result is the package that is going to be passing the House on Thursday. So then this package, this next batch of money, how long is it expected to last? That's uncertain. And there's um, some 
debate about that. There have already been lenders saying that this amount of money is not going to be sufficient and that they already forecast that it will be running out in fairly short order. Secretary Mnuchin was asked if he thought this this additional $300 billion would be enough. He said that he thought that it would be, but it's going to have to be something that lawmakers and the administration watch and see how it goes and see what, if any, additional steps are needed. So we've spent this time talking about Congress's actions, but I just want to for a second focus on the real ways that this money affects people's lives. How is this money in the pockets of Americans affecting day-to-day life, people's ability to pay bills? Is it helpful? Is it enough money? Is it actually keeping businesses open and employees paid? Well, there have been a, a variety of different reports along those lines. We've heard from a lot of small businesses who have not been able to tap the funds. There was a rocky rollout. The Small Business Administration website was overwhelmed and and crashed repeatedly because of the demand from small businesses. So there have been businesses that were simply unable to get this money or have not been able to do so thus far and therefore have not been helped by the program. There are other success stories. There have been some community lenders that were successful in using the program to get funds out to small businesses in their communities. And we have seen a number, again, of success stories from a variety of businesses ranging from, you know, auto part shops to coffee houses and any other small business uh, uh, in between that you could think of that have gotten loans and have been able to use that to keep operating and to keep paying their employees. So this spending is to some extent working to stabilize the economy in tangible ways? It is to some extent for some small businesses. And certainly the authors and proponents of the program say it's a success, acknowledging that there have been glitches. This you know, came together very quickly. The Small Business Administration, through this program, was able to push out a huge number of loans dwarfing anything that they had done in any previous scenario. So even with the flaws in the program, the money did get out to a lot of small businesses that have been helped by it. Okay, so where does this all leave the next steps for Congress? What happens when we need the next round of of money? That is a question that is very much open to debate at this time. Democrats are already talking about another massive spending bill along the lines of the $2 trillion CARES Act that passed in late March. They would like to see something similar in size and scope. They want to start working on it right away. Top priorities for them include funding for cities and states. Uh, However, Senator McConnell has said that it's time to hit the pause button on massive relief bills. He wants to wait until Congress can physically come into session, which is currently scheduled to happen on May 4th, although that timeline could obviously potentially slip. McConnell has also begun articulating concerns about the debt and deficit impacts of all of this spending, which has now reached close to $3 trillion overall. And he would like to, again, take a pause, see how everything is working before Congress dives back in to passing additional 
enormous bills. Okay, last question for you, Erica. You've covered Congress as an economics reporter for a long time. What about the passage of these bills and the injection of this amount of money into the economy seems most surprising or unusual compared to what you usually see in your reporting? Is it the levels of compromise in Congress? Is it the speed? What's most unusual? What is most striking and, of course, is relates to the unprecedented situation that our country is undergoing with the coronavirus is the scope and the speed by which these bills came together. What was done, for example, in the 2008 uh, financial crisis was an overall $700 billion uh, federal bailout. This, what has been done so far, dwarfs that many times over. The need in the country, the huge number of unemployment claims, the fact that the social distancing guidelines from the government have brought the economy to a virtual standstill has provoked what has been an unprecedented, really unprecedented response by Congress. And despite partisan breakdowns along the way, it has resulted in bipartisan outcomes thus far. I do think that that is now going to start to change as we see negotiations move forward or maybe not move forward on additional spending measures. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. The speed with which we've seen action on these funding measures and the bipartisan agreement thus far raised questions for me about what exactly is being agreed to. Where does all the money come from and with such urgency? I turned to The Post's economics editor, Damien Paletta, to give me a version of Economics 101 and to explain the consequences of essentially creating a bunch of new money. There's two ways that the government gets money. One is the Treasury Department goes out and borrows money by issuing debt. So in a normal time, the government would spend $4 trillion on things like the military, Social Security, Medicare, the EPA, and it would only bring in $3 trillion in revenue, right? So there's a trillion-dollar gap, which we call the deficit. To cover that gap, the Treasury Department issues debt, goes out and borrows money, and that's how it brings in money. And the other way that the government gets money is that the Federal Reserve literally prints money. It just kind of creates money out of thin air to put more cash into the economy. And right now what we're seeing is both of those things happening, you know, at an incredible rate. The Treasury Department is borrowing a tremendous amount of money to pay for all these new government programs. And the Federal Reserve is printing a tremendous amount of money to essentially flood the economy with cash to try to get this crash to stop. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about 
flooding the economy with cash. What can be done to affect how much money is in circulation in the country? Well, I mean, it's a great question, and it's kind of this mystery. I mean, it's not it's not like there's printing presses in the basement of the Fed where they're just printing out a trillion dollars a day, but they are creating money electronically that they put into the banking system. And then that money can be lent out or, you know, put around the banking system so that companies that need money can get access to it and things like that. There's obviously a big risk when you do that, when you print too much money, when you put too much money into the economy, it can cause inflation, which is a nightmare of a problem. But right now, the, the economy has so many other problems that inflation is just not something that the Federal Reserve officials are worried about. So what they're trying to do is get so much money into the economy, into the banking system, into financial markets, so that people don't get spooked. Let, let's say the un- unemployment rate right now is 20%, which is terrible, but it's better than 40%. So even if they can arrest a little bit of this downturn, it will have been worth it if they print all this money. Now, typically, why is inflation such a problem under normal circumstances? Well, sure. Let's say that you go buy a gallon of milk and it's $4, and then there's runaway inflation, and you go to buy a gallon of milk and it's $20, right? I mean, that's a huge problem. And it's once inflation starts, it's really hard to stop. We're seeing right now oil prices, you know, have crashed, so the price of gasoline is lower. A lot of people think that's great. Well, it's destroying a lot of, you know, energy jobs in Texas, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. But if oil prices shoot back up and create inflation and you're paying 12 or $13 for a gallon of gas, people are going to stop driving because they can't afford it because if their wages don't increase with the cost of other things, which is a huge problem. Quite frankly, inflation has been so low for several years that it hasn't been a big concern. But once inflation picks up, it's so hard to stop. And the way they usually stop it is by raising interest rates. And if you raise interest rates when the economy's weak, you've got a whole, whole bigger mess on your hands. So that's the risk of printing all this money. But like I said, right now, it's just not a concern of theirs. Okay. So in terms of printing all this money or having all this money, Congress decides the amount of money that is being used to help the economy. And the government at this point has spent trillions of dollars and is estimated to spend trillions more. We're talking about trillions. That is tremendous numbers. So first, can you explain why that number is so high? How does the spending break down? Sure. Well, I mean, what's amazing is the government on a normal year spends around four or four and a half trillion dollars on all the programs. And just in the past few weeks, the Congress has committed another three trillion dollars. So they've almost doubled the government's budget just in a few weeks. What they're doing with this money is they're kind of spraying it across the economy. So a lot of it's going to small businesses. A lot of it's going to larger businesses like airlines. And then they, of course, are sending out these payments between $500 and $1,200 to millions of Americans to try to give people some money to pay their bills for a few weeks. They've expanded the unemployment insurance system. So they're doing all these things in little pockets of the economy, maybe not so little pockets, to try to get, give everyone kind of a cushion so that Everything doesn't crash down at once. But everyone acknowledges that this money is only going to be kind of a Band-Aid. It's not going to fix the coronavirus pandemic. And so if the pandemic extends and people have to stay home and businesses stay shuttered, this money is going to kind of evaporate after a a month or two. And then they're going to have to either go back for more money or come up with some new plan. And that's kind of the risk of this whole thing. They're they're spraying all this money across the economy, but it's it's only a short-term fix. And if the health part of this doesn't get sorted out soon, then we've got a big mess on our hands. You've explained the two ways the government usually gets money. The Treasury Department borrows money and the Federal Reserve prints money. But what's unique about the relationship between these two bodies right now when trillions of dollars just seem to be appearing? What's interesting here is you have this 
kind of weird feedback loop where the Treasury Department is issuing all this debt and the Federal Reserve is buying the debt and creating money out of thin air. So the Federal Reserve and Treasury Department are actually, you know, working in tandem on this. There's obviously risks to this kind of thing. It's never been done in this fashion before, but they feel like the risk of the alternative of doing nothing is much worse. So that's why they're flooding the economy with money right now. So then are there risks involved in the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve working together to this extreme? Well, I mean, obviously the risks are if you just, you know, and we've seen this in some countries, like when I was, did a semester abroad in college, I was in South Africa and Zimbabwe was just to the north. And they had, I think there was like a bill, one of their currencies was like a hundred billion dollar bill or something. And it was like worth 20 cents. I mean, you can't just keep pumping money out because the money becomes worthless. And the U.S. economy is strong, obviously. Uh, there's so much demand for our debt, and we're the gold standard. But if, you can't just keep printing money. Other, otherwise, you just, you know, the, the government can say, okay, we're just going to give everyone a trillion dollars and everything will be fine. It's not how it works. So, you know, that you want to make sure you protect the value of money. But when there's a financial crisis and when you have, you know, 26 million people just in five weeks lose their jobs, you have to get this money into the economy immediately so that people, you know, don't become destitute or that all these millions of companies don't crash into bankruptcy. And so that's what we're seeing happen right now. Now, whether they can continue this for several months, I don't know. It's going to be quite expensive, and it's something that's never been tried before. How much debt can we take on? Does the national debt matter? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, I think the (laughs) national debt right now is... I mean, 23 or 24 trillion dollars. Right now, we're looking like they're going to add another four trillion dollars this year, which is a tremendous amount of money. I mean, the one thing they have going for them is that interest rates are so low right now, and the cost of the U.S. government borrowing money is so low that it's actually kind of cheap to borrow money. So, let's say, for example, that you were going to buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars at a 10 percent interest rate. You know, but let's say you could also a few years later buy a $150,000 house at a 1% interest rate and the payments end up being the same. I mean, they're kind of benefiting from issuing all this debt at almost no borrowing costs right now. But that's not going to last forever. Eventually, these costs are going to go up and they're going to have to come to grips with this huge, you know, debt that's piling up. But right now, neither party seems all that concerned about it. If the government can essentially create money out of thin air at any time, why don't we see this more often? And you've touched on this, but are there politicians or economic theories that advocate for this type of spending? Well, I mean, yeah, there are. Actually, there's a there's several competing theories. And it's interesting as we get closer to the November election, and you're going to hear a lot of debate about this. You know, what is the role of government? What is the role of government spending? Who should the government be helping? Should they be helping businesses like they, they're really focusing on now? Or should they really be prioritizing workers and households and helping people get college educations? I mean, they're Depending on who you talk to, there is or isn't a limit on how much the government should spend to try to you know, help people. And so I think that's a debate that's kind of play out before us. There is concern, obviously, you know, in the 70s and 80s when you had really high inflation. It was a total nightmare. And it's really hard to, to stop runaway inflation. It does really chill the economy when you have inflation that gets high. And so that's kind of the big concern. So where does the current leader of the United States fit into all of this? What is his philosophy around the economy, around this spending at this moment? Well, President Trump, his biggest concern is to get the economy up and running 
before the November elections, quite frankly. I mean, he went from an unemployment rate of three and a half percent in February to now we think we're cracking close to 20 percent, which is unbelievable in just a few months. So we don't hear the president that concerned about the Fed printing money. In fact, he wants the Fed to do everything it can to get the economy strong again. These are the kinds of issues, printing money and the debt and deficit, that tend to come in after the crisis is over. You know, what are we going to do to fix this? What are we going to do to prevent this from happening again? How are we going to clean up this mess? Right now, the biggest concern is getting people back to work, getting companies propped up so they don't collapse. Because there's nothing worse, obviously, for politicians than having 30 or 40 million unemployed people, especially when you're heading into an election. So um, that's the concern from both parties right now. The the president doesn't really have uh, a stipulated approach to the dollar or what he wants, you know, the, the U.S. cash system to look like. He just wants the economy to get back on its feet as soon, sooner rather than later. Does our reporting indicate that Trump wants to see specific things in terms of relief packages? Is he interested in injecting money in specific areas of the economy to stimulate it? Yeah, I mean, great question. So they've already passed bills that total about $3 trillion. That money's gone to unemployment benefits, small businesses, large businesses, airlines, these $1,200 checks, hospitals, testing for coronavirus. Both parties now are talking about a, a huge package that could be coming in the weeks and months to come. And this could be another $2 trillion. It could include things like big infrastructure spending. It can include assistance for cities and states. It can include a whole bunch of other things that both parties have kind of talked about for years, but not really gone anywhere with. And I think the idea is, as we saw during the Great Depression, sometimes you need to have this big government injection of cash to get people back to work because private businesses aren't going to be able to do that. So if there's some big infrastructure project that the government commits all this money to, it'll create a lot of new jobs. And and you get like a return on your investment, right? There'll be new roads and bridges and infrastructure and broadband and housing and stuff like that. So I think some members from both parties think that's a good idea. But there's also, we're starting to hear people say, you know, when is enough enough? How much can the government really spend before it's too much? And so I think that debate is going to start picking up even more as we get closer to the election, because we're kind of right now at this position where we're kind of arguing about the direction of the U.S. What role is the government supposed to play in situations like this? Can the private um, economy, private businesses step in and sort some of these things out? Or do we really need the government in an emergency like this to step in and kind of take over? And that's the debate that's going to really play out over this next bill, I think, because The initial, you know, $3 trillion was considered emergency money. It was passed virtually unanimously. But now that we're, you know, getting to this next stage, I think the debate's going to get a little more fierce. And if it were up to the president, he might err on the side of injecting as much money into the economy to get it going as possible? Well, right. I mean, the the president's main focus, and it has been all along, is job creation, stock market, wages, getting the economy juiced. And that's why he wanted low interest rates, and that's why he wanted tax cuts, and that's why he wanted all this government spending. The focus was never on the deficit for him. The Republican Party orthodoxy during the Obama administration was cut the deficit, eliminate the deficit, pass a constitutional amendment that erases the deficit. For, for President Trump, the focus has always been on job creation, low oil prices, get rid of regulations, redo trade deals, more spending and less taxes. And that does create a bigger deficit. And as we saw, it can create quite a few jobs, 
But when you have a situation like this, when 26 million jobs evaporate in just a few weeks, you kind of have to reevaluate, are tax cuts going to sort this all out? I think a lot of people say no, but they got to come up with something and they got to come up with something fast. All right. Last question for you, Damien. This is a lot of money injected into the economy and distributed by the government. It seems ripe for investigation. What pieces of this process warrant a close eye and, for that matter, the, the attention of reporters? So I covered the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. During that time, Congress passed a law that created a $700 billion program to try to stop the financial crisis. And even with that money, there was plenty of abuse and misuse, and quite a few people went to jail for fraud. Now we're talking about essentially $3 trillion that flew out the door in a few weeks. There's very little oversight. There's no scrutiny. We've already seen a number of mistakes. We're hearing reports that people are getting these $1,200 checks sent to dead people. We're hearing examples of large firms accessing lending programs that are designed for small companies. They're like doing this so quickly, and I think we can understand why, because the economy is crashing, that they don't have time to kind of kick all the tires and make sure everything's being done in a way that protects taxpayer money. And I think as this goes on longer and longer, we're going to hear more stories like this. All right, Damien, thank you so much for talking to us from your closet. We appreciate it. (laughs) Anytime. Great to be here. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Just a reminder that The Washington Post has all of the information you need to stay on top of the latest coronavirus news. Sign up for our coronavirus newsletter to get our latest reporting and FAQs to keep yourself safe. Any article you click in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Washington Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com slash coronavirus. You can, of course, also use the Post's podcasts to stay informed without being overwhelmed. Always free online or on any podcast app. Find them all at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. All of those links are available in the episode description. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the elegant Carol Alderman and Ariel Plotnick, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.